BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. It's Friday, November 15th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook at Slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. So on today's show, we talk to climate researcher Michael Mann, a scientist who went on a pretty unlikely and in some ways incredible journey from being curiosity driven, just doing his research, what scientists do, that kind of thing, to getting pulled by overwhelming force into politics and ultimately campaigning directly against a politician, Ken Cuccinelli, in the state of Virginia's very, very high-profile gubernatorial race. And it's a, it's a pretty amazing story. Here's a clip of Mann discussing it. My book is, in substantial part, um, is about my journey uh, from, you know, a science nerd who the last thing I ever wanted to do was to get involved in politics. You know, that to me, that was anathema. Um, and how, because of my experiences and because of the situation I found myself in, I ultimately did grow to embrace you know, the the role that I can have um, in sort of informing this this debate um, that we're having about potentially the most significant challenge that human civilization has faced. So in some ways, I actually think that Michael Mann is hearkening back to what used to be the role of the scientist, which was, you know, to really further society and, and make things better. Um, you know, it wasn't so uh, different from politics. And, and in a lot of ways, you know, scientists make the same sacrifices that politicians do in terms of devoting their all their time to one thing that doesn't make them a lot of money. <laughs> Yeah, there are there are other precedents for this. You know, I, I'd have to go back to the history books, but there were scientists who actually in a lot of the elections, there have been scientific organizations who campaign who campaigned for a particular presidential candidate. Uh, they're not as influential now as they used to be, say, 50 years ago. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, a lot of scientists do shy away from politics. And in some ways, you know, I, I understand that impulse since politics can be super messy and scientists like things to be as clean as possible. So the question um, is, yeah, whether man will yeah. change that. Yeah, yeah, we'll see if he's effective. You know, I think that that could be a really great example for people to follow. So that's going to be our interview today. But first, let's talk about some science goings on in the world. And Indre, I guess first, you're going to tell us that this whole thing about being left brain or right brain that I've heard forever is just wrongheaded, right? 
I've been saying that for years, oh, really? Chris. Okay. <laughs> yes. It's it's actually one of my pet peeves in terms of misunderstandings of, of brain function by the lay person. Um, but, you know, this summer, there was this really interesting study that came out looking at uh, functional connectivity. So how different brain regions are active uh, at, at the same time um, in a healthy individual using um, neuroimaging. And, and they were really trying to see whether you could... Um, differentiate between the personalities of people who are primarily left-brained or right-brained in terms of how their brains are active. And it's just been picked up in the news this week uh, for some reason, I guess. There was a bit of a lag. And and uh, the, the end result of the study is that there was really no evidence that the sort of typical personality characteristics of what we call left-brained and right-brained people um, correlate with functional activity in one or the other hemisphere. And, you know, to me, it never really made sense that there would be this kind of personality trait associated with these two hemispheres, because there is so much interconnectivity between the hemispheres. Uh, and, and in fact, I would argue, if you look at just the you know, neuroanatomy of the brain, there's far more connection connections that can be seen between, um, you know, the same regions on either side of the brain. So like in the front of the brain versus the back of the brain um, between the hemispheres, then across the hemispheres. So the front and back of the brain is in some ways less connected on one hemisphere than it is between the two hemispheres. It's got to be a story here about how this whole thing got started and caught on. I mean, it's sort of it's sort of phrenological, isn't it? I mean, people want to be able to point to a place and attach it to something about a person. It's like they want a horoscope. I think in some ways it's really psychological. We want to think of ourselves as being either creative or logical. Um, You want to be both. (laughs) I want to be both. <laughs> I think you want to be both, but yeah. Um, but yeah. So you know, the 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 initial idea came from studies of split brain patients who were patients who had severe epilepsy, and in order to stop the spread of seizures from one hemisphere to another, neurosurgeons would cut that connection. Um, and now, so psychologists could query each of the sides on its own, and they found, hey, you know, the two sides seem to behave differently. The left side has language; the right side does not. Um, etc. And so that's really where this kernel of an idea came from. Um, but then, you know, it was it was just completely overblown over over a long period of time. And my, my pet peeve is when you have people who say, hey, if you want to be more creative, you know, play with your raise your left arm or do some kind of activity with the left side of your body since it's represented on the right side of your brain. I and mean, there's no evidence that that makes you more creative. Um, and what's interesting about this study that came out in August is that they also found there's no gender difference in terms of this this correlation between uh, personality and right or left brains, which, you know, I think a lot of people would think, oh, women are more right brain, men are more left brain. And, you know, it's just no evidence that that's the case. Well, I'm sure people will now drop it and stop stop clinging to this. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) I'm sure that will happen immediately. (laughs) Right. So, so this, you know, I want to take us now on a brief trip down the leaf strewn autumnal memory lane of science. So I want you to listen uh, to this clip from the opening of Carl Sagan's Cosmos. And maybe, you know, tell me where you were when this was airing in the fall of 1980. And I'll tell you why I wanted to play this after we hear it. The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Our contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There's a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as if a distant memory of falling from a great height. 
We know we are approaching the grandest of mysteries. Well, um, I'm afraid, Chris, uh, without dating myself too much, I really probably wasn't doing much, but maybe annoying my big brother at that time. Uh, I was pretty young and I don't actually remember <laughs> this. <laughs> no, I didn't see it until many years later. I would have been three, I guess. I was probably biting another kid in the sandbox when this <laughs> So I only found out about Carl Sagan much later when I was devouring his books, when I was trying to figure out what I thought about everything. But but the reason uh, I'm I'm drawing us back to this moment now is because this week uh, I attended a major remembrance of Sagan at the Library of Congress on Capitol Hill, no less. And there were all these science superstars, Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson, John Holder and the President's Science Advisor, plus... Seth MacFarlane, the incredibly funny guy, they were there dedicating Carl Sagan's papers to the Library of Congress. And there were all these stirring speeches about him. I didn't know that he kind of inspired Bill Nye to create his, his show for kids. There were all these scientists there who had written Carl Sagan letters and Sagan had responded and inspired them to their careers. So it was very, it was very moving. But then there was this political overtone where I guess it was because it was on Capitol Hill. Everybody wanted Carl Sagan to still be around and there was this sense that, oh, if he was just still here, he could solve all these science political problems for us because he got through and now nobody can get through. And my problem was just thinking, no, uh, unfortunately, I'm not sure that even he could get through now. Yeah, it's a very different culture. And there are a lot of great science communicators. I, mean, I would argue that we're kind of living in a, in a golden age, at least science communication is only getting better. Um, and there are far more people out there who are doing it really, really well. Um, and yet, you know, we, we have a, a stronger backlash than ever. Right. It's, and it's the, the media, I think, is the force that's even bigger than Sega. I mean, he was a star, uh, but there, there are things, there are structures larger than even a star. And what's noteworthy, uh, and, you know, this was pointed out by David Morrison, who was one of Sagan's students, and now he works at, um, I think it's SETI. He said that, Carl, when Carl Sagan was, was doing this, when Cosmos was happening, there were only a couple of TV channels that people were watching, right? And so you're almost like doomed to watch Carl Sagan or else you had maybe two or three other choices when he was on. So, uh, and, the, and the numbers, the viewership numbers for Cosmos are insanely large. They approach a billion people around the world. 750 million is what I've read. And everything is so fragmented. Neil Tyson is going to be the star of a remake of Cosmos, uh, but the audience, I mean, I, I don't know, but let's hope they get a million, and you know, so it's just a different world. Yeah, but at the same time, now we can actually interact with some of these scientists in ways that we couldn't have with Carl Sagan. So David Morrison is a great example. You know, he used to write a column called Ask an Astrobiologist uh, for NASA Ames, where, you know, a 10-year-old kid could send him a question about, you know, what what's going to happen if a meteor hits the Earth, and he would answer. Um, so in some ways, even though, you know, we don't have these these single outlets that draw billions of viewers, we have a lot more options to actually interact with scientists. Right. But I still think that the question is, and, and maybe it's, there's no answer to it, but, but if there was going to be a Carl Sagan today or a parallel, it would be somebody that found a way to reach everybody that isn't the president, right? And, and it's, <laughs> it's hard to imagine what that would be, but that, that would be the Holy Grail. I don't know if yeah. the Holy Grail can still... <laughs> yeah, but who can reach anybody in any industry? I mean, you know, even yeah, who even listens to us? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking like even Lady Gaga, right? I mean, you know, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, well, look, so that's that's the question that it poses. There's no easy answer, but for all the Sagan aficionados out there, you'll be glad to know that his papers are at the Library of Congress, and he is being remembered very fondly still. So with that, let's take a short break, and we will be back with our interview today with Michael Mann. Michael Mann, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be back with you. First off, I know you've got a new book out in paperback, The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, and we'll talk about it, but there's some important news in climate science. I hope we could go there first. So there's this new study uh, just out. It says that after all this hoopla, there isn't really even a, quote, global warming slowdown or global warming pause. It's just gaps in the data. What What's going on with this new study? Yeah, this whole idea of there being a pause or even the, the claim, the extreme claim that climate change, that global warming had stopped, is all really not supported by good science. Um, it, what is true is that if you look at the projections of warming from climate models uh, and you look at a period uh, as short as the last 10 years, then yes, the models on average suggest we should have seen more warming than we actually saw over that short 10-year period. But the discrepancy is actually quite small, and in fact, uh, it falls easily within the range of natural climate variability. If you just look at the random year-to-year fluctuations in temperature from things like El Nino and La Nina, and we've been stuck sort of in a mostly La Nina-like climate over the past few years, which has uh, led to a slightly cooler surface uh, uh, than we would otherwise uh, have seen. Uh, And if you look at the effect of a small downturn in uh, the solar output and the brightness of the sun and some of the effects of volcanic activity, we can easily reconcile that fact, the the fact that we haven't seen as much warming as the models suggested we might see from those facts alone. Uh, Well, it turns out that now the discrepancy we're trying to explain appears to be even smaller. And we could already explain that discrepancy easily from natural climate variability. But now we know that that discrepancy that we were trying to explain is even smaller. And it turns out for a very basic reason that you know, a number of scientists have, have, have talked about. And uh, we, we've known for some time that there's a potential bias in some estimates of the global average temperature from not including uh, some parts of the Arctic where the data are sparse, but where we know the most warming is taking place. And so if you don't sample that part of the Arctic, you're underestimating the rate at which the globe is warming. And that's what these researchers have shown, that if you, you know, use an appropriate way of, of estimating that, uh, that warming, um, then you know, the, it turns out that the, the globe has warmed more than we thought it had over the last 10 years. Well, and then there's something that I think is more intellectually interesting, although, again, this pause thing, we had to deal with it so much in the media. But, you know, but but there's, you know, Super Typhoon Haiyan, I mean, it's just stunning, um, also horrible, Uh, may have been the strongest storm on record. The data on hurricane intensities is all gobbledy so it's like hard to tell but i mean 195 well, you, you wrote a book on this didn't you <laughs> it's, it's it's a mess <laughs> you know i've been playing with it so it's hard to say it's hard to say definitively but it was incredibly strong i mean what do you what do you make of this from a climate perspective 
Yeah, I mean, as you say, you know, some of the earlier uh, measurements are a little sketchy. And so, you know, there's some speculation by people like Jeff Masters of uh, the, the Weather Underworld, um, who's, you know, sort of one of the one of the great pundits when it comes to looking at sort of the history of tropical cyclones and, He's and hurricanes. He's a storm pundit. He's a storm pundit. Absolutely. Um, and he, you know, and he's, he's, he's argued that um, some of the earlier estimates may have represented inflated uh, mm-hmm. sort of estimates of, of uh, typhoon intensity. And when you take that into account, there's a very credible case that can be made that Haiyan was indeed uh, the strongest uh, typhoon on record uh, and almost certainly the, the strongest landfalling uh, typhoon, the, 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 the greatest wind speeds um, that we've seen at landfall with any typhoon. And the damage, of course, was massive, and it's extremely sad. Uh, the very large number of people who, who perished um, because of this storm. And you know, your heart goes out to them. And what is so disturbing is the idea that this could be the new normal, that that may be what we're looking at. You know, we have predicted for decades, uh, folks like Kerry Emanuel, um, one of the leading tropical um, uh, cyclone specialists in the world at MIT, has, uh, you know, for years has been saying that we will be seeing increased maximum intensities of tropical storms, hurricanes and typhoons, because of warmer oceans that provide more fuel for these storms. And what we're seeing play out is exactly what we've been predicting for some time. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's stunning. I mean, I have watched this and and I was thinking for a long time, the record has been this incredible storm called Super Typhoon Tip, which had, you know, this low pressure of 870 millibars, but, you know, and, and it was, it was gigantic. It was like half the size of the United States. And I was, well, when would that ever be broken? Well, here we are. <laughs> Yeah, I think the central pressure for Haiyan was yeah. 858 millibars. Yeah. I mean, it's just... Yeah, it depends on what you consult, but, you know, it's it's all, yeah. Yeah, they're, 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 yeah. they're you know, because some of these estimates are satellite-based, and yeah. sure. The bottom line is, you know, we had Haiyan this year. A year ago, we had Sandy, which had record characteristics of its own in terms of the size of the storm, the, the deepness of the, the central pressure of, of, of that storm, you know, the farthest north we've ever seen a storm with a, as low a central pressure as Sandy had, and the devastation, of course, that was done to New York and uh, New York City and the, and the coast of New Jersey because of a record uh, coastal surge, um, which at the very least, you know, there are a number of components, a number of aspects of that storm that were unusual and even record-breaking and may into which climate change may have uh, contributed. But without question, the one undeniable role that climate change played was contributing about a foot of global sea level rise over the last century, which means that that 13-foot coastal surge at Battery Park, one foot of that 13 um, was due to global sea level rise from global warming. And the difference between that 12 and 13-foot surge was the difference between flooding large parts of you know, lower and, and, uh, and western Manhattan and not uh, flooding them. Right, and the you know the wall of water from Hayan is also going to be I don't know how many inches slash foot and, foot and whatever I've seen thirty thirty feet is the latest estimate I've yeah, seen. Yeah, but some of that's going to be a sea level rise component too. I mean, that's, right, I, absolutely. And I, I can't put a number on it, but I mean, we know it's the case that I, I even saw somewhere that sea level rise might be a little bit higher 
for the Philippines than many places. So. That's right. There's sort of a hot spot of sea level rise in the Western Pacific um, because of the warming of those waters and, and, and ocean water expands um, as it warms. And there's been an especially large amount of warming in the Western Pacific. And so it is sort of a, a hot spot of sea level rise. And that almost certainly contributed to the devastation wrought by the storm. So so let's let's turn to your book, The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars. You know, I don't know, Mike, if there's any scientific metric for determining this, but I think you're the most attacked climate scientist. I don't know if we have a measurement, but I'm wondering if we could create a scientific unit called the man to quantify the intensity of attacks on scientists. What do you think? Could we actually like say that's five mans, that's ten mans? Yeah, well, you know, it, originally it was the Schneider, and then it was the the, the unit of measurement was the Hansen, and then it was the Santer, right. and and you know now it's the man, and it'll be someone else. You know, they yeah. will uh, climate change deniers will will find someone else to vilify in, in an attempt to to make this issue climate change seem like it's you know somehow just the result of a, a one or two personalities rather than fundamental laws of physics and undeniable you know changes that uh, we are making in you know our our atmosphere from fossil fuel burning so this seems like a i mean again this fact that you've just been drawn into the maw of politics so much it's such an unnatural culmination of the story that begins. I mean, you just tell us you started out as a kid, you saw the movie War Games, you wrote a computer program to play... To, I, I, I'm not sure exactly what you did, to tell a computer how to play tic-tac-toe, right? Yeah, no, I, I, mean, I saw it as a great challenge, yeah. So how did... I mean, you know, it's so incongruous that we, we live in a world where someone who starts out uh, with curiosity ends up with politics. Yeah, I mean, as uh, I was on... Uh, you know the uh, the Chris Hayes uh, show on MSNBC a couple uh -huh. months ago, and I thought Chris Hayes um, sort of framed it uh, very well. You know, he, 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 when he summarized my experience, he said, "You know, you didn't come to politics; politics came to you." And uh, right. and that's right. I mean, I you know was a science nerd, uh, and you know enjoyed you know my idea of a fun Friday night in high school was uh, hanging out with my computer nerd buddies, uh, eating pizza and writing computer programs. To solve problems and i loved solving problems um uh in you know well just own it we're with problems. you we're with you on this show yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i feel like i'm uh, in good company uh from the, the nerd <laughs> side of things uh you know and that's in that and that's who i was and i i loved science and i loved math and i loved computer programming and studied that in college and and decided to go into theoretical physics um uh, in graduate school started out working in theoretical physics at Yale University, and then sort of had a, a crisis of scientific identity. Um, I was looking for, you know, a, a problem uh, with sort of wider implications and ramifications than sort of the fairly narrow physics problem that I was working at on at the time. And I saw that there was a, a scientist in the Department of Geology and Geophysics there um, who was using math and physics to model the Earth's climate. And that sounded like just an amazing wide open problem where I could bring my math and physics, um, you know, knowledge to working on you know, this, this amazingly important and interesting problem of modeling the Earth's climate system. And uh, unbeknownst to me, that new sort of 
trajectory and my scientific career would lead me into an area um, of, of the science uh, known as paleoclimatology, uh, where you know I'd be studying the information uh, left behind uh, about the uh, distant past climate changes from things like tree rings and ice cores. And it was work that we were doing, trying to piece together the puzzle of how the climate had changed in the more distant past using these so-called proxy records that led to this curve, the so-called hockey stick curve, which demonstrated that the recent warming that we've seen over the past century uh, appears to be without precedent as far back as we can push the record using those sorts of data uh, back in the late 90s when we published uh, the sort of the millennial hockey stick curve um, that was a thousand years back in time. We concluded that the recent warming was unprecedented at least that far back in time. This curve became an icon in the climate change debate because it told a simple story. You know, you didn't need to understand a lot of physics and math to to see what that curve was telling you, that there are unprecedented changes taking place in our climate today. And, you know, by inference, uh, they probably have something to do with us. And so because of that curve that became an icon in the climate change debate, it was featured in the summary for policymakers, the widely read summary for policymakers of the, the third assessment report of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 2001. And without realizing it, by publishing that curve, I had positioned myself in the center of the larger debate over human-caused climate change. And that meant that um, my findings were inconvenient to those who you know, find the implications of climate change inconvenient, those who yeah. believe that we shouldn't regulate carbon emissions. And that made me uh, an object of attack. Um, and ever since, you know, a decade and a half ago, when we published that original paper, I have been defending, you know, myself and my colleagues and more generally our science collectively, the science of climate change against the attacks of vested interests who don't like that message. We called it uh, in one article that I did, which actually zinged all over. So you probably saw we you probably remember we called it the most controversial chart in history explained. And I, I mean, there may be some others, but it's 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 up there. In and not controversial a, scientifically. Yeah. You know, there are dozens right, no, of I know, groups, I know. Yeah. But yeah, because of what it represents, it, it, it was seen as a threat. Yeah. But there's a lot of studies. In fact, even maybe since the book came out in hardback, now paperback, uh, a lot of studies that or just keep on spitting out more hockey sticks, right? I mean, they keep on doing it. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, new yeah. forms, because now yeah. we're learning that Arctic sea ice has a similar yeah. hockey stick pattern, as does, um, you know, uh, temperatures in uh, Australia and measurements of uh, warming in Antarctica. Um, there, you know, what we are finding as we dig more and more into the data is that the, the changes that we are seeing today really are unprecedented over a very long time frame. Um, uh, we are engaged in an unprecedented and uncontrolled experiment with the one planet that we have. Well, I, I, wasn't there wasn't there a hockey stick for for paleo climate that actually went back at 10,000 years now? Is that right? So you, you can actually say that? 
That's right. And uh, there was a um, an attempt, uh, an effort using sort of coarser data. So they're somewhat more uncertain. They're somewhat more tentative because their their resolution is, is coarser. They these sorts of data that were used in in this one study that was published um, uh, about a year, uh, a little less than a year ago, by Marcotte uh, et al. in the journal uh, Nature Geoscience. Um, they used uh, these somewhat more uncertain, coarser data to try to sort of push the record back to the end of the last ice age, you know, nearly 12,000 years ago. And what they found was that the warming spike of the past century appears to have no precedent. Um, and uh, as far back as they were able to go, there was another study published just weeks ago based on uh, remains uh, that have been uh, found, um, organic matter that was preserved in uh, Arctic, um, in the Arctic region, that the recent rate of Arctic warming may be unprecedented in tens of thousands of years. Wow. So, as you said, politics came to you, and in the last year, and especially in the last couple couple of weeks, uh, you got involved in politics at a level that uh, virtually, I would, I don't know if I should say virtually no scientists do, but it's pretty rare. So you act, actually campaigned against uh, Ken Cuccinelli as governor of Virginia, and this got to be quite a big deal. And I want to play a clip from a campaign rally for his opponent, Terry McAuliffe, that captures this because this rally had a guest star appearing and uh, referring to you. Here's the clip. It, it doesn't create jobs when you go after scientists. You know, and, and, and you try to you, you try to offer your own alternative theories of how things work and engage in litigation around stuff that isn't political. It has to do with what's true. It has to do with facts. You, you, you don't argue with facts. So, Mike, the president's talking about you. Were you surprised when this happened? Well, you know, it it was. It was quite an experience. Um, just a few days uh, earlier, I had actually introduced uh, the former president, Bill Clinton, um, at a rally for Terry McAuliffe in Charlottesville, Virginia. And Bill Clinton had made the same point about how dangerous it, it is when you know, politicians like Ken Cuccinelli try to tamper with science, try to intimidate scientists, try to abuse their uh, authority um, to attack findings, scientific findings um, that are inconvenient to the special interests who fund their campaigns. In the case of Cuccinelli, he was heavily funded by fossil fuel interests. He had close ties to the Koch brothers, who are the main funders of the the current campaign of disinformation and denial of climate change. Um, and in that same week, so both Bill Clinton um, and Barack Obama, as well as Joe Biden, had all weighed in on this issue. I couldn't have imagined that Ken Cuccinelli's uh, attacks uh, on me and the University of Virginia would have played so central a role in this campaign, Um, though I have to say, um, when I was asked uh, originally by the McAuliffe campaign if um, I would uh, be willing to play a role in the campaign, it was a no-brainer for me because there could be no greater contrast um, between Ken Cuccinelli, who sees science as something to attack when it doesn't agree with his ideological views and the views of those who fund his campaigns. So he engaged in this partisan, this witch hunt uh, is what the Washington Post called it, uh, against me and the University of Virginia, trying to force the university to turn over all of my private emails so he could try to find something in them to discredit 
at me, to embarrass me, um, to uh, attempt to call into uh, question my science and thereby, you know, the agenda was quite clear to try to call into question the entire science of climate change as if it rested on one 15 year old study by me. Um, yes. But it was clear, you know, that this was a full frontal assault on on the world of science and an attempt uh, by a politician to insert himself into the scientific process in, process in a way that was almost unprecedented. And you got a lot of support as a result of that. I mean, I remember everybody sort of sort of came out of the woodwork. I, so, I mean, it's not like this is a pretty special case. This is a pretty special case for you getting involved. I mean, it was it was this one. But it's not a Democrat Republican as much as it's this one politician that you basically, you know, this happened. No, exactly. It wasn't about my politics or, you know, my political views. It was about, you know, this I had very personally experienced, um, you know, and witnessed the danger uh, represented by, you know, uh, ideologues like uh, Ken Cuccinelli, um, who, you know, are sort of um, driven by anti-scientific uh, ideology. And, and I recognized that I had a duty as somebody who had been attacked directly by him. I had a duty to make sure the voters of Virginia knew who they would be getting if they were to vote um, for him as governor. And by contrast, what they would be getting if they voted for Terry McAuliffe, who, you know, uh, made it very clear that he saw science and technology, technological innovation as the key driver of, you know, of the economy in the decades ahead. And he recognized that Virginia has to be embracing science and technology, not attacking it. Well, let's l- let me just uh, ask one more point here, um, which is what I'm wondering. Campaigns are usually, I mean, this campaign, any campaign, the number one issue is almost always not not always, but it's almost always in some way economic. Uh, do you feel that climate change actually influenced the campaign, or I mean, there were a lot of a lot of other things in the air, or can we even really say? Well, you know, it, it's always difficult. You know, I, I'm obviously not a uh, you know an expert on on politics, and to tease apart the various. You know, I know how difficult it is in scientific problems to tease apart multiple factors, and it's probably even more difficult in politics um, to tease apart what are the different factors that led to the result of, you know, uh, Cuccinelli uh, being defeated, Terry McAuliffe uh, being elected governor. And now we learn today, very likely, pending a recount, Mark Herring, who was the one other politician I campaigned for. Uh, I campaigned for um, him as attorney general. He was facing a Republican opponent who embraced Ken Cuccinelli's views. And so I had comp- campaigned also for Mark Herring. Um, and uh, after the, the official uh, count, uh, he's now up 100 and something uh, votes. Uh, there'll probably be a recount. Uh, but uh, if that stands, then it'll be a double victory for science and a double defeat for anti-science. Um, it's so, yeah, it was, uh, I think, an important uh, moment. I'm not sure, you know, if in the end climate change itself um, was the driving factor. But I certainly believe that the issue of ideologically driven anti-science, um, which, you know, was symbolized by Ken Cuccinelli, Uh, I think that did fit into a larger narrative of, you know, a a, a dangerous candidate who is driven by ideology over logic and science 
and um, and substance. And I think in the end, that was the difference. That was why, you know, Virginia, which, you know, I think has not in modern history elected a governor of the same party as the current president for the first time um, did so here in, in decades. And for the first time, um, as I understand it, the conservative Richmond Times-Dispatch uh, did not endorse the Republican uh, candidate for governor. In fact, they had editorialized a number of times uh, about just how pernicious Cuccinelli's attack on me and the U- and UVA uh, really was. So, I mean, I know that you you clearly have have the conviction that you you needed to get involved in this race, but obviously there's a lot of un- discomfort in science with politics. Um, and I, I want to know how you respond to those who would or at least one might infer from what they do argue that they would maybe not approve of this. There's um, Tamsin Edwards, a climate scientist, uh, has written in The Guardian that scientists shouldn't advocate for particular policies. So I would think advocating for a particular candidate is even a step farther. Uh, and uh, advocacy in general is sometimes a dirty word uh, in science. I mean, so how do you respond to that? Yeah, I think actually Tamsin Edwards' um, uh, commentary, from what I recall, even yeah. went further than that. It, it oh, actually, really? so that, uh, as I recall, it, that, that scientists shouldn't weigh in at all in you know matters of uh, policy relevance uh, or some, you know, it, it, which I I certainly think is somewhat uh, misplaced, misguided. Um, you know, I think that scientists have to be willing to inform our political discourse when you know matters of, 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 of policy relevant science are involved and that's different from advocating for specific policies which I myself um, uh, draw the line at um, you know I see my role as a scientist in general as informing the the, the, the political discussion um, as making sure that uh, the policy debate is premised on an honest and an objective assessment of the scientific evidence of the risks that we face. And as long as that's the case, as long as the ground rules are set fairly, you know, I trust, you know, policymakers to, uh, to be able to debate what, you know, are the best vehicles for achieving those ends for dealing with the risks associated with climate change. I'm perfectly comfortable in, you know, politicians debating, you know, conservative approaches uh, like um, uh, revenue neutral carbon taxes that uh, some Republicans have come out for versus, you know, cap and trade legislation. Let, let our politicians debate what are the best vehicles for dealing with the problem, but we can't allow them to pretend that the problem doesn't exist. And where that's the case, where we see the discourse um, premised on on bad science or anti-science, I think scientists um, uh, play an important role. And uh, and in this particular case, because one of the two candidates here, um, much of his, you know, uh, much of what he did as attorney general uh, was premised on his anti-scientific ideological views about uh, climate change, you know, attacking the EPA for regulating carbon based on the idea that climate change is a hoax, going after me personally in the University of Virginia because he thinks that climate change is a hoax. Uh, you know, I think scientists have to be willing to call out such blatant uh, distortions of the scientific facts um, when, you know, when they present themselves. And that's what I felt I was doing here. And, and that's why I feel that um, uh, my role wasn't so much, uh, you know, wasn't really being a, a political partisan, but defending science when it became a central issue in this campaign. 
Well, I think we're going to have to see what whether others uh, find cases, and I agree, this is a sort of a, a pretty unique case, uh, find cases where they think that that line has been crossed and whether there are other scientists who will feel they need to do that. Well, it's a delicate you know, line, no question yeah. about it. Bloomberg Markets just named you one of the 50 most influential people on their annual list. And I mean, I in just in general, I mean, I think that you've you've drawn a lot of attention for the book and for all the things you've been doing. The question for me is this, isn't there a sense in which all these attacks on you backfired? I mean, they helped you. I mean, that you're getting you're getting named one of the 50 most influential people in part because people attacked you so much. Well, you know, I'll let others assess that. You know, what I did <laughs> you know, you whether that- whether well, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, they, Bloomberg, uh, um, you know, would, would make that argument and others have made that argument. And I've certainly been able to play a far more prominent role in the larger debate over climate change because of, you know, the prominence that I've achieved in part because of the attacks against me and, and the hockey stick by, you know, high level politicians like, you know, Joe Barton of Texas and Ken Cuccinelli and, you know, the efforts by front groups um, uh, to uh, attack me, to vilify me in an effort to to to, to try to uh, discredit the science of climate change. Uh, what I do do think and what I do feel is that I had a responsibility. You know, when I was subject to these attacks, I felt like I had a responsibility not only to defend myself and my science against bad faith um, attacks, uh, but more generally um, to to fight back as you know. In a, in a way that makes clear to my colleagues that, you know, that it isn't right for us to just lie there as the forces of disinformation and, and denial and anti-science attempt to mislead the public, especially in areas of science that have such pro- you know, profound implications for, you know, the sort of world that we want to leave behind for our children, grandchildren. If we don't make the right decisions now as far as our, you know, burning of uh, our carbon and, and the increase in greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere, we will be leaving a degraded planet for our children and grandchildren. So the stakes couldn't be greater. And when the stakes are so large, we cannot allow the forces of anti-science to prevail, to skew our political discourse in a way that leads us to make the wrong uh, decisions. And so I felt like um, I had to fight back, not just for myself, but to, to, to make it clear to other scientists that we do need to defend uh, our, our science, uh, uh, not just because it's the right thing to do scientifically, but because you know, the implications are, are so profound in this case and in many other cases where the findings of science find themselves on a collision course with you know, narrow special interests who uh, don't want to see you know, regulation of their product, uh, be it tobacco or fossil fuels. Um, and that's you know, what my book is in, in substantial part um, is about my journey uh, from you know, a science nerd who the last thing I ever wanted to do was to get involved in politics. You know, that, to me, that was anathema. Um, and how, because of my experiences and because of the situation I found myself in, I ultimately did grow to embrace you know, the, the role that I can have um, in sort of informing this, this debate um, that we're having about potentially the most significant challenge that human civilization has faced. And, and I just want to say, I mean, obviously, you, you seized the moment. You 
you took on uh, a challenge when you could have shied away from it. And I didn't mean to detract from that, but I just mean that there is an irony. <laughs> I recognize it. And, you know, and uh, others will write about it. And, uh, and you know, that's, um, but I, yeah, I, and I talk about this in, in my book, you know, and I talk about it. And there's a new uh, additional chapter where I've updated the story over the last, you know, year and a half or so since the original uh, hardbound uh, uh, book. And uh, a lot has happened since. And I've continued that journey. And, you know, as we've been talking about, for example, uh, in, with my involvement in the, uh, in the McAuliffe uh, campaign, the Virginia governor's race. Well, I, I think it confirms the old adage that, you know, say whatever you want about me, just spell my name right. Although if they spell your name right, they might confuse you with the guy who directed Miami Vice. Yeah, <laughs> they still do. It still happens. <laughs> yeah. I get but, invitations but uh, to events that uh, that uh, he, he was expected to uh, to go to. Yeah. <laughs> Did anyone stand up and read an introduction to you and read the wrong introduction? <laughs> it's come close. Times. <laughs> But we'd much rather interview you. We'd much rather interview you, Mike. So, um, so listen, it's been great to talk to you, and it's a great book. And uh, keep on going. And thanks for the science, and thanks for the perspective. Well, thank you, uh, Chris. You know, for you know your efforts to really inform you know these discussions with you know your knowledge of the science, but also your understanding of the role that politics plays in the way that we deal with you know, policy relevant science today. And, you know, I, I was right back at you, you know, thank you <laughs> for, for everything that you've done to inform these discussions. Well, thank you. I'm blushing. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure. Really interesting interview. And I, I have to say, I'm a bit still a bit stuck on the very beginning of it, where he talks about Haiyan and how just massive the storm is and the frightening prospect of this potentially being the new normal. Now, you know, I don't want to make too much of one data point and and say that this is evidence for um, the effect of anthropogenic global warming. But, you know, it's certainly the evidence is piling up, it seems to me. And uh, it's pretty scary. Yeah, well, I could go on a rant about storm records and how bad I sort of started to in the interview and how how bad they are. You know, they've done a terrible job of letting us say what the strongest storm is. So then how can you make the the logical leap toward climate change? And that's because it's so hard to study storms and a lot of countries don't invest in it like the United States does. So there's just this, this terrible database, but it looks like it might have been the strongest that we know of. And there are reasons to expect that the storms will get stronger. So uh, man is within his rights to to point this out. And also with the sea level rise, I mean, that one's a slam dunk. So, and, you know, even if you weren't making the storm stronger, they'll be able to throw more water at you that'll hit you further inland. Yeah. So coastal property owners, beware. Yes. Yes. So uh, that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, and Wired. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. 
Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.